Listeners, have you been following the TalkHouse podcast this year? We have been out of the gate with a bang, and today's episode is no different. It's one of my favorites that we've run in quite a while. This episode is brought to you by Current. Current is a mobile bank account that comes with a Visa debit card that has no minimum balance, no overdrafts, and no hidden fees. The black premium card, which I have to say looks pretty fancy, gets you paid up to two days faster when you move your direct deposit to Current. It only takes two minutes to sign up, and 10 of the first 100 people to sign up for Current using the promo code TALKHOUSE will win 10 bucks. Download Current now, and here's the show. Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? I'm your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Joining me from Chicago, we have... Josh Modell, executive editor. Hello, Elia. Hey, hey, welcome back to the show, man. Well, thank you. We have a very exciting pairing today, a show that I've really been looking forward to sharing with you all. Robbie Robertson of the band in conversation with his golden messengers, MC Taylor. Incredible pairing, uh, a couple of guys who have pretty amazing histories. They do, they do. And the occasion for this was the brand new documentary on the band called Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band. The film was executive produced by Martin Scorsese, Ron Howard, and Brian Grazer. Josh, I got a sneak peek of it. And there are sex, drugs, rock and roll, tears, feels. I thoroughly enjoyed this, man. And celebrities, of course, because Robbie Robertson knows everybody and has worked with everybody. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen appears, Eric Clapton. Of course, his very longtime collaborator, Martin Scorsese, and there's some really beautiful footage of Bob Dylan and the band that I'd never seen before. Josh, one thing I kept thinking as I was researching today's episode, listening to the conversation, watching the film is just how much Robbie Robertson has redefined the music game. As a musician, he's redefined what American music can be. He's redefined what a concert film could be with the band's film, The Last Waltz. And he's redefined what movie soundtracks can sound like via his work with Martin Scorsese. Yeah, of course, after his tenure with the band, he started working with Scorsese on pretty much every Scorsese film going back 40 years. King of Comedy, Color of Money, Raging Bull, Shutter Island, right up through The Irishman from last year. Yeah, those two have done incredible work together. Robertson grew up between Toronto and a Six Nations native reserve in Canada, His mother was Mohawk and Cayuga, and his biological father was a Jewish gangster who was killed before Robbie was even born. You're bound to be an interesting person with those as your parents. You couldn't be boring. Robbie started playing young, and by 15, he'd already left Toronto to head down to Arkansas to play behind Ronnie Hawkins. That gig took him across America, and he slowly brought in fellow musicians from the Toronto scene as members of Hawkins' band left. That is where the band, as it later came to be known, first coalesced. So yeah, Robbie was kind of billed as the architect and chief songwriter of the band, uh, which also include Levon Helm on drums and mandolin, Rick Danko on bass and fiddle, Garth Hudson on keys and horns, and Richard Manuel on keys and drums. Three of those guys, of course, sang. One of those bands with, you know, three lead singers. (laughs) Yeah, as Springsteen says in the doc, quote, they had three of the most incredible white singers in rock history. 
Yeah, and of course, they famously became Bob Dylan's backing band in the mid-60s. The recordings they made together became the basement tapes. So they had backed Bob Dylan on his first electric tour. They backed Ronnie Hawkins. So when it came time to strike out on their own, they were just called the band because they were the band that had backed other folks for so long. Their 1968 debut album, Music from Big Pink, became a true classic and was one of the blueprints of what later became known as Americana. If you're ever inclined to read any Rolling Stone best of list, it's probably on there. It's going to be on there. The band put out some fantastic shows. Their last time all playing together was documented masterfully by Martin Scorsese in the film The Last Waltz. I remember, Josh, watching that in my 20s and thinking, Neil Young's got coke all over his nose. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was probably just marshmallows. Just marshmallows. Yeah. Alongside his film work, Robbie went on to release solo records, produced many other artists, including Tom Petty, and went on to be inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Don't forget that he was the A&R guy who signed Nelly Furtado to her record deal. There we go. He's a visionary. Now, the documentary Once Were Brothers takes its name from a brand new song by Robbie of the same title that he wrote while thinking about his decades of relationship with the band. Let's hear a clip from the song Once Were Brothers. Can't even remember He's still got it. A beautiful song after all these years from a guy who's made a ton of fans over the years, including a fella named MC Taylor, a.k.a. Mike Taylor, from a band called His Golden Messenger. Yeah, I was so glad, Josh, that MC joined us for this conversation. He's been on the show before once with Jim James of My Morning Jacket and is just a wonderful musician. He is an embodiment of what Americana has become, and, and he's pushed the genre forward as well. He's also... Interesting to this conversation as well, MC is a folk historian. He was originally a member of the band The Court and Spark. Yes, that is named after the Joni Mitchell song. He then left California and moved to North Carolina, where he studied at UNC Chapel Hill's Folklore Graduate Program. Yeah, I think he's kind of become part of this really rich scene in Durham right now, where obviously Merge Records is based there. Sylvan Esso is there now. Y Oak is there now. And he's one of those guys who is right in with kind of other musicians. It sounds like a backhanded compliment, but he's kind of a musician's musician and that people, other musicians love him. Aaron Dessner's on his record. I think Jenny Lewis is on his new record. People just really dig what he's doing. That's exactly what they said about Robbie Robertson and the band. They were musicians' musicians. There you go. Taylor's gone on to release 11 albums, the latest of which is Terms of Surrender on, as you just mentioned, Merge Records. From that album, let's take a listen to the track Happy Birthday Baby. Think of me better than I think of myself. One was a lonely number two. You were born as under three. It was lightning quick. You lit at the house like a match. It's beautiful stuff, huh? Absolutely. MC and Robbie get into a lot over the next 45 minutes. We, of course, hear many, many wonderful stories about the band, including playing with and learning from both Ronnie Hawkins and Dylan. We also hear about Robbie's collaborations with Scorsese. Whom he calls my brother, which I thought was awesome. And he hints, Josh, at a huge new project that they're working up right now. I'm curious to see what that's going to be. God, I hope it's the story of Robbie's dad. (laughs) 
another gangster film. I thought The Irishman was the last. No, no, not when you have a history as rich as Robbie's. <laughs> we hear about Robbie's take on creativity and the meaning and process of songwriting. They also get into the making of music from Big Pink. Robbie's friendship and non-friendship with Levon Helm. And Levon's hating country music and at first not being into Dylan's sound at all. And they talk about Robbie's unlikely correspondence with classical composer Christoph Penderecki. As well as Robbie's, quote, incredible jukebox in the sky. Should we roll it? Let's hear it. Hey, Robbie. Mike, as in microphone. As in microphone. And I'm talking to you from Durham, North Carolina, where I live. Oh. Good spot. Okay. Lots, of mu lots of musical history here. Oh, yeah? Like what? Blind Boy Fuller lived here forever. Gary Davis, Reverend Gary Davis. Oh, yeah. He's a big one around here. Elizabeth Cotton oh. was, was from around here, too. All right. Do people celebrate that? Yeah, they do, actually. That musical history is still pretty evident here, if you care to go find it. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> okay, Mike, um, what can I tell you that you don't already know? Man, you know, I feel like I know your story so well. I've, I've obsessed about the story of you and your crew of people growing up. So let's see if we can find, find some cracks to explore. I have to admit to being a little bit anxious. I'm not the type of person that gets very anxious or starstruck, but I'm a little bit anxious talking to you, waiting for your phone call because I've been such a massive fan for so long. I read your book a couple years ago. I saw the new documentary that, um, mm. as I understand it, is not coming out yet. So the, the documentary is premiering at Lincoln Center in New York on uh, February the 11th. Mm -hmm. And then it premieres in Los Angeles on the 21st, and then it goes wide on the 28th. And we're, we're pretty happy uh, with the way that this turned out. It's much more emotional than what I saw coming, but I like that about it. Yeah, I think that was what really struck me about it. Does it feel strange to see your life kind of summarized on the screen like that? Well, it's a piece of time, and um, it doesn't seem strange, you know, because it was inspired by my book, and they kind of honed in on some certain periods of it, which I appreciate. And I think, well, I mean, we had such an extraordinary team of people that helped make this what it is. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I'm so grateful that it, it, it turned out, because, you know, when you go into these things, a lot of, you don't know what you're going to get. And in this case, the pieces fell in place in a beautiful way. And I love the idea that it celebrates the music of the band, and it celebrates my songwriting from then and now. So I'm, I'm really happy with the storytelling in it. Mm -hmm. what, what's it like to, to have talking heads like George Harrison and Eric Clapton singing your praises? I mean, I know you've been hearing that since the late 60s, but does that still, does that still get you? You know, there was a thing... And this is something I don't think I've talked much about. But years ago with Ronnie Hawkins, 
And when we had this lineup of musicians that went on to become the band, mm-hmm. over a period of time, and we, you know, we were very young when we started. I was 16 when I started with them, yeah. with Levon and, and Ronnie. And, and then the other guys came in when I was 17 and 18, you know, around then. And it wasn't long before the mission that we were on, the direction that we were really drawn to in this, we started to become known as musician musicians. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and a lot of young musicians would come and check us out and other bands would come and check us out. And Ronnie Hawkins felt like he, that he wanted to have the best band around. And he wanted us, he made us try to live up to that, uh, the best uh, that we could. And, the, and by his toughness in that as well. And after a while, we got used to the idea of being respected by other players, by other musicians. Mm-hmm. And so that continued, that continued on and on. And the reason that Bob Dylan asked us to hook up with him is because of that, because other musicians said, oh, no, these guys, they're the real business, you know? Mm-hmm. So I I didn't know in the beginning, I didn't know how familiar Bob really was yeah. with a band. You know, I mean, he, he did everything on his own. And then when he started working with other musicians and it started to grow and everything, but when he hired us, we felt like it was a little bit of like, you know, that he was just operating out of instinct and what people told him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that he was really listening to what we were doing individually and sizing it up or judging it or anything like that. Then when we got around to doing our own thing and making music from Big Pink, it was the musicians that came out in force right after that. And it seemed natural to us. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't, we weren't taking it for granted or anything. But when, like you said, when Eric or George Harrison and, and many other musicians, you know, they came out and gave us a pat on the back and thought we were doing, you know, original and interesting work. And we thought, oh, right, that's who we are. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, we're still on our game here. <laughs> but when you guys made music from Big Pink, you were stepping into the unknown in a way just because it seems like you were at an in-between time. You, Bob Dylan was not touring at that time. You were trying to keep your hand in the game. I mean, was there any any concern on your part, like, uh, among the band? No, not at all. Playing with Bob Dylan was a sideline for us. Yeah. We were going to do our thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a very unique setup in our group. You know, we, we had like a gospel. We had a piano player and an organ player. Mm-hmm. Not many bands had that. And we had three singers in our band. There was nothing like that around. And so we were just doing our thing. And and when Bob Dylan came along, 
and said, guys, would you do this tour with me? Would you play with me for a while? And then we did that and we thought, well, let's see what we can learn from this experience. Maybe it'll be good for us moving on to where we really want to go. And then after the tour, and we did the basement tapes, mm -hmm. all of this stuff added up. And when we made music from Big Pink, it didn't even resemble what we did with Ronnie Hawkins. It didn't resemble what we did playing with just as the Hawks. Didn't resemble what we did with Bob Dylan. It was a new sound, a new feel, a new world. And something happened that took us in the evolution of the music. It took us to a place and we didn't even know we were going there. It was just a natural evolution in our musicality. And when we heard our, we didn't really know what it was until we went into the studio and recorded. And a lot of the songs on Big Pink are on there in the order that we recorded them. Oh, really? Yeah, the first song we recorded was Tears of Rage. And when we heard that, we thought, yeah, okay. That's that's what it's supposed to be. <laughs> I mean, I I will say that record still to this day sounds like nothing nothing else that was coming out at that same time. Um which I think speaks to maybe your collective confidence in your in your musical voice at that time. When I first heard that record when I was a kid, I had to keep coming back to it to attempt to understand all the constituent parts of it, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I kind of got into um, quote-unquote country rock at, at a time when I maybe my, my brain, my ears were leaning that way. And when I discovered the band, I thought, this is sort of country rock. But it doesn't sound like anything else. It doesn't sound like country music. I can see how there are elements of country music in it, but it's its own thing. It's interesting that in the early days, Garth was a musician. He didn't know nothing about country music. Mm -hmm. he, he understood classical music and jazz and R&B. That was his background. Mm -hmm. Levon really disliked country music. Uh -huh. And the and and Richard you know he didn't know anything about it. you know he Richard was completely all about R&B and rock and roll and I had some background of country music as as so did Levon but Levon rebelled against it and re rejected it. Mm -hmm. And we were playing in a rockabilly band. Mm -hmm. And anything that leaned too much towards, because like before I played it in the Hawks, there was a, a, a bass player by the name of Lefty Evans. Mm -hmm. And Levon used to say, and who loved country music, and he would play bass and he would sing too. And Levon said, I don't know how you hold your nose and play bass at the same time while you're singing. <laughs> Meaning that twang, that sound. Yeah. So it's very interesting. But what did resonate with us? And in, in, in the very early days when I was a kid and I was growing up between Toronto and the Six Nation Indian Reserve, 
all my relatives on the reserve, they lived in the country. Mm-hmm. And they sang country songs, great country songs, beautiful stuff. Are we talking like Hank Williams, Conway Twitty? Yeah. All that stuff? No, this was before Conway Twitty. Okay. But it was Hank Williams, Lefty Frizzell, mm-hmm. you know, Slim Whitman, even before George Jones. Yeah. But when George Jones came along, they were like, you see, that's Lefty Frizzell yep. wearing different clothes. Uh-huh. You know, they really <laughs> understood where things come from. And there was an irony that Indians were teaching me country music, uh-huh. cowboys and Indians, you know what I mean? It was like, okay, this is fun. So then what do you think it was about that type of music that was resonating in that community? What happened was when we moved up to the mountains in Woodstock, it's up in the mountains, you know, the Catskill Mountains, and all of a sudden the mountain air the mountain feel made you open your arms a little bit to mountain music. And so bluegrass music started to seep in. And it just felt like, well, you know, you you do what you do because of where you are. Mm -hmm. We loved the playing and the singing and the harmonies, you know, and the Stanley Brothers and the Leuven Brothers and... All the brothers, you know, uh-huh. Johnny and Jack yeah. and everybody and Bill Monroe and all of these people. That was different mm-hmm. to us. You know, there was like, oh, my God, that's a, that's American music there. That isn't pop country. Right. And the stories that they were telling and were singing about. So that became something. And, and Bob Dylan, too. He opened the door to some American musics, too, that we weren't embracing. We weren't, some of it we weren't familiar with. Mm -hmm. We were able to come together a little bit on mountain music because we were all up in the mountains. Right. So that was to blame for some of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But it was always because where Levon was from in the Mississippi Delta, it wasn't country music there. You know, this this was the area where those musics mixed together, right. where it came down from the mountains and it came up from New Orleans and it mixed right there in the Mississippi Delta at Clarksdale and Helena, the area where he was from. Mm-hmm. And in this radius around there, the people that came out of that place was a phenomenon to me. I didn't understand how much music could come out of one area. And when I went down there, when I was 16 years old, to join up with Ronnie Hawkins, hopefully they were going to hire me. Mm -hmm. But when I went down there, it was like going to the Holy Land to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is where Muddy Waters came from and Bo Diddley and Robert Johnson and Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash and... Jimmy Reed, and on and on and on. And it was just incredible. I just thought, how does this much music grow out of the ground in this 100-mile radius? Did you ever get a sense of why uh, 
how it was that all of those um, musical visionaries were coming from virtually the same place. I've wondered about this a lot myself. You know, I thought it was, like I said, this, this meeting place where blues and country met. And that's what became rock and roll from a white point of view. And then from the black side of the tracks, of these guys, Sonny Boy Williamson and, and Muddy and Wolf. Oh, my God, Howlin' Wolf. I was like, what planet is he from, you know? How do you, you know? And it was just so extraordinary. And the musics came together. And, you know, when a group like Booker T and the MGs came along, mm-hmm. there was an interracial group. Mm-hmm. I just thought, wow, that is, that's the story of the music right there. Mm-hmm. When these guys come together and they make a sound like that. That's the real, real thing. Mm-hmm. Today's episode of the Talk House podcast is brought to you by Current, a mobile bank account that comes with a Visa debit card with no minimum balance, no overdrafts, and no hidden fees. You can connect your Current card to Cash App or Venmo, and it also works with Apple Pay and Google Pay on your phone. The Black Premium card gets you paid up to two days faster when you move your direct deposit to Current. So if you normally get paid on a Friday, that means your paycheck's gonna hit on Wednesday. Now, I know a lot of our listeners like to check out the latest TalkHouse podcast while you're driving. The Premium account has perks like instantly refunding the holds that gas stations put on your card at the pump. In addition, 10 of the first 100 people to sign up for Current using the promo code TalkHouse will win 10 bucks. That's a chance to win 10 bucks just for signing up and using the promo code TALKHOUSE. Your current card will even be shipped to you for free. Download Current now. Or if you're driving, wait till you get where you're going. And now back to Robbie Robertson and MC Taylor. With you and your friends sort of deep background in blues, rhythm and blues, um, essentially black music, a lot of it. What did you make of Bob Dylan's music when he approached you guys? Well, to be really honest about it, we didn't know much about it. You know, this was folk music and we came from the other side of the tracks. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of musicians, you know, were folk musicians and then evolved into playing rock and roll. We were born playing rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I started out, there was no acoustic guitars even around. Right. You know, when I joined Ronnie Hawkins, nobody wanted an acoustic guitar. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. what's that for? You know, that's not what you play rock and roll on. Uh-huh. So even though... You know, a lot of singers like Elvis accompanied themselves and Johnny Cash on acoustic guitars. We were coming from a deeper, darker place in Mm -hmm. that. And a lot of it had to do with Levon, you know, from the area that he came from. It was, if it don't feel good, it don't matter. Right. You know, and, uh, and he played in a way that, and when we joined up with Bob Dylan... 
um, it was a bit of a problem for Levon. He was like, you know, this, this music don't feel that good to me. And we're, <laughs> and we're like, well, let, let's, let's help Bob make the music feel better. Let's go to that place yeah. where that has something to do with it. It isn't about just getting all these words in in time. It's really about doing it, and it accounts for both things. And it took a while before we really got to that place, but but we learned from one another, you know, just wonderful things. What do you feel like you got from from Bob Dylan? You know, we were part of that world, and he was opening doors that had had not been, nobody wrote songs like that before. Nobody used that mm-hmm. kind of language in songs before. And when he hooked up with us, what happened when we mixed together, there was a dynamic and a power and an energy and something that came together in that. And we couldn't help but make this music on 11. We just couldn't pull back. We were too young to pull back. And so uh-huh. it took us a while to, you know, to, to be able to take a step backward and appreciate more subtleties mm-hmm. and everything. But I don't know what happened when, and, you know, when people are booing you, you it just makes you want to play louder anyway. Right. Yeah. Geez, that, that seems like a um, part of the gospel of the band, really, is that experience, you know, traveling around, playing these huge shows during which a big portion of the crowd was booing. I mean, in a way, it feels like you would come away from that if your ego wasn't too shattered, um, even more confident in what you were doing than you were before. That's what happened. That's pretty remarkable. Can we talk a little bit about about the music of your life, music that has um, has inspired you or formed you? Do you mean what music I've listened to over the last 50 years that might have had an effect on what I think? Exactly. Well, there is just tons of it. And, you know, I can't point to any place or any one. It's, it's part of our job from the very beginning, was gathering, was absorbing. When we were playing around with Ronnie Hawkins, after that as the Hawks, always our mission was gathering and learning and absorbing. And it was like a traveling workshop for us. No matter where we went, we had to hear that gospel group. We had to hear the staple singers or the caravans or, you know, it was a little bit before our time, you know, the soul stirs and the harmonizing four. We had to hear that gospel music. We had to witness it and absorb that. Did you go see that stuff as you would travel? Would you would you go see them play? Oh, yeah. But we would go and hear, you know, Garth would take us to hear Egyptian musicians all of it, you know, we wanted to witness Glenn Gould, the piano player. Mm-hmm. He was from another world of someone that was making music. And you say, whoa. And if you can learn about all of these things, you know, 
And so we're absorbing Charlie Mingus and we're absorbing Howlin' Wolf and we're absorbing, you know, the most incredible corners of music too. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I'm listening to Christoph Pendereski and his mm-hmm. composing. And I, and I finally got to use uh, his music in Martin Scorsese's movie, Shutter Island, which mm-hmm. I'd, I'd been wanting to do stuff with. Pendereski and I used to write notes back and forth to one another years ago. Did he know who you were? Well, eventually, you know, when the band uh, music came out and... Uh, but we grew into that. I was just, you know, mm-hmm. appreciating. I heard this thing he wrote, the Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, and it was so moving. It was so powerful and outrageous. And and I don't know, it just got to me in the same way that Nina Rota got to me. So mm-hmm. you see what I mean? It isn't like, oh, our, you know, our school our way of looking at music was such a broad horizon and such an appreciation. Mm -hmm. And when we made our records, we could hear all that stuff in there. We could hear the gospel influences. You know, we we could hear the mountain influences. We could hear the Delta influences. All of these things, and Garth was just like a a walking encyclopedia of musicalities. Mm -hmm. And we had never heard or seen anything like Garth Hudson before. And the fact that he, he was in our group, and so it just, it expanded that horizon. We got out of a small cabin in the woods and got into a place that moved around and took in more and more. And then one day I'm, I'm realizing my favorite sound of an instrument is an oud. You know, so all of these things, you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and to this day, you know, when I'm working on film music and things, I have those resources. I have this to fall back on. I have this incredible jukebox in the sky that I can pull from. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's part of what makes certainly the records by the band sound so otherworldly is that they sound like they're made by musical omnivores. And it sounds like you were drawing all of your favorite and the most moving parts of the music that spoke to you and that, that crossed every genre. That was our truth, yeah. So how do you write a song? I mean, what is, what is a song for? This is kind of a, a big question, or it can, be, it can be as simple as we want to make it. What, what is a song supposed to do? It's a discovery measure to me. Whenever I'm hearing something, or whenever I'm, you know, I, I go into this a bit in the documentary, and I'm saying, you know, I love that feeling of having no idea what's going to happen. And you sit down and you see whether your muse is looking over your shoulder or not. You sit down and you see if something sneaks up on you. 
and something comes out of that. Mm-hmm. And you have to accept the idea that it's not completely predictable. I used to admire these guys in the Brill Building that would just get up in the morning, go to work, go in there and write songs and give them to people to record. And they would sing them Mm -hmm. and and they would play them all over the world. I thought, now there's a great job. (laughs) That's fantastic. And so I have a bit of that thing where I don't mind just, you know, I am... I have a writing studio that I go to and I mess around and I mess around with Uh sounds. I mess around with rhythms. I mess around with chord changes. I mess around with lyric ideas. I mess around with storytelling. And all of these things, I stir it around until something catches my attention and I try to follow that path and see if it goes anywhere. What is the thing that catches your attention? I I, I suspect that it changes from song to song, but are you looking for an emotional reaction within yourself? Are you looking for a lyric that feels smart or sharp? What is it that you tend to move towards with a song? The unexpected. Hmm. So what are some of your your favorite work from over the the many years that you've been creating music? What is some of the work that you're the most proud of? I'm not sure because I'm still on a mission. And I'm I feel a bit superstitious about sitting down and making up my mind about things that are still in motion. <laughs> I understand that. I got a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of stuff And I've got stuff that I'm about to venture into that I don't know how in the world I'm going to do it. But I like this challenge, you know. I like this idea of trying to do something that I barely understand, but it feels right. Is there anything in your career that you think to yourself, I'm really glad that I wrote that? Well, I think that I'm glad I wrote everything. And you know what I mean? I don't I don't I'm know. Trying, I'm I'm asking <clears throat> you to choose favorites here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and I know that, you know, a lot of people could say, "Well, you know what? When I wrote this song, when I wrote Rag Mama Rag, I felt pretty proud." Uh, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But I could say that about so many things, but I'd I'd have to sit down with a list and look at everything. But I'm telling you, the things that are going to catch my attention most are the ones that surprised me the most. Uh Uh Can you give me an example of something that has surprised you that kind of struck like lightning? The only ones that I'm in touch with are stuff that I've done recently. When I wrote the theme from The Irishman, I thought, I don't even know where that comes from. But I needed to find something that was completely not obvious and something that was not movie music and something that could play over a period of 50 years. And uh, it's not that easy, you know, so... I I really appreciated when I discovered that. I've got a couple of tracks on my new album that really snuck up on me. One of them is, because I I don't get too 
autobiographical in things. I like to just be more of the storyteller than I got up this morning and here's what happened to me. You know, I've never been that mm -hmm. comfortable uh, with the me, me, me business. But I wrote this song mm -hmm. on this album that, a few songs actually, that I thought, where the hell does that come from? You know, something that I had no idea that was going to come out of me that day. And I wrote the song, Once We're Brothers, and it was a reflection of my brothers in the band. Mm -hmm. And they were making the documentary at the same time. And when they heard this song, they said, oh, my God, this is the center of what we are reaching for in telling this story in the documentary. We want to use it in the documentary, and we want to call the documentary Once We're Brothers. So that was, <laughs> that was pretty satisfying. Mm-hmm. That sounds like it would have been. Do you think about your relationship with with those guys in the bands often? Well, um, it was such an incredible relationship, such a beautiful musical bonding, such a brotherhood that we had. It pops up pretty regularly, and I think, oh, my God, I remember when Rick did this and blah, 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 and I just, I feel a warmness in my heart. And and for all of the guys, there was just so many stories, so many moments, so many musical moments, all of that, that you can't, I, you know, it's impossible for me, you know, not to reflect on that pretty regularly. Yeah. I know that um, Levon spent a lot of years really angry at you. We don't need to go into this too deeply, but... Um, I don't mind, I, I, I don't mind, you know. Levon, you know, he, he had some problems, and I felt mm -hmm. terrible about it. And I felt bad about what what happened to Levon. And he had, you know, several kinds of problems and it escalated and it came out. And even, you know, when he was doing his tantrums or whatever he was doing, I never said a thing. You know, I, mm -hmm. I know him. He was my brother, I know him and in any fucking rock and roll band, there's this shit that goes on. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't invent nothing new in that. And all kinds of things, you know, drugs and alcohol and things happening in what you thought should happen in your life that doesn't happen and that disappointment and that mm -hmm. whatever depression, whatever those things are, you know, it just happens, and uh, and I felt terrible for Levon, and I cared for him tremendously. So I was never really involved in that. This was just a trip that he was on, and and yeah. and I and there was times over the years too, where you know, in his illness and everything, I did stuff that helped him out. And I'm okay with all of it. I, you know, I've never had any issues with anger or any of that towards him or any of the guys in the band. Yeah. 
I gotta say, I'm 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 good buddies with Levon's daughter Amy, and oh. she, you, who I, I'm sure you know as well, and, yeah. and she she herself is a truly incredible singer and and a, just an absolutely lovely human. Yep, she's yeah. a wonderful talent, and she's been a great person ever since I've known her. Ever since she was born, and the last yeah. time I saw Levon when he was in the hospital. Amy is the one that took me in and brought me into his room uh, so I could spend some time with him before he passed away. And Amy and my daughter, Delphine, have been friends, you know, since they were born. So she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah she's family to me. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about family and, you know, not, not specifics, but Family seems like it occupies a pretty important part in your life. Um, there's certainly a lot of talk about about family in your book and in the film. The band was a a proxy family in a way. I mean, the way that you were all um, sort of depicted is as this very tight group of almost family tight group of people. What what does that mean for you? Well. <clears throat> It's kind of a broad question, you know, what does family mean? Well, I feel like some people would say, ah, I don't know, my parents weren't, you know, they, they didn't, I, I do my own thing. But I don't get the sense that, that that's, that's the way. I do. I do my own thing. <laughs> yeah. When we made music from Big Pink, and there's a picture in there called Next of Kin mm. with a bunch of our family members. So you could see... That and you know, and we talk about it too, you know, in the documentary, you know, and if it's a period where in rock and roll where it was like anti family and anti this, and you know, I hate my father and I loathe my mother, and, I, and we were like, <laughs> that's not that's not us, we don't feel that way at all, yeah. And we weren't just doing that to rebel. We were doing that because it was a soulful thing to do. And that's how we really felt about it. And we grew up connected to our folks, you know, and we've all got, you know, the good parts and the bad parts and all of it. But, you know, it, it played an important part in our being and in, in our music, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are your kids musicians? My son is a musician. He does a lot of music for television. And he's he's involved in a whole world that I don't even know about. And my daughter, Alexandra, is a music executive. And my daughter, Delphine, was a music supervisor for many, many years. So I warned them. I told them... I was going to ask. Don't go in there, <laughs> I, you know. But they, uh, I guess they couldn't help it. Yeah. Let me ask you a little bit about Martin Scorsese, and, and that seems like another relationship that has been very collaborative and very, very long. Um, in fact, in, in a way, you've been working with him longer than anybody. What is your relationship like with him now? Well, we have, you know, we have our bond and our friendship. And, you know, we've gone through some amazing stuff together, you know. So we are like blood brothers 
for living through some madness. And then on the other side of it, there's all the work. And we get together and we have a few laughs and then we go to work. Mm -hmm. And right now we're talking about what we're going to be doing next. And it's all stirring around. And it's one of the most challenging things that he's ever done or I've ever done. So, uh, yeah, we got to roll up our sleeves. <laughs> I thought you just got finished with a huge project for him. Yeah, but, you know, you don't want to blink. You know what I mean? You got <laughs> you, you to keep the spirit alive. Yeah. Well, this feels like a good place to end this conversation, I think. I could keep talking for hours, but everything that, that is in here is is powerful. Oh, um, good, good. And I, I, wanna, I want to tell you how valuable your music has been to me, how educational and, and spiritual and inspiring. So I, I'm very thankful for that. Thank you. Oh, Mike, I appreciate that. And uh, I'm glad I could have helped out along the way. <laughs> Yo, you did. You oh, did. You taught, you taught me and my whole circle of of people so much, so I, I oh. so appreciate that. Well, send them my blessings. I've, you know, I'm very appreciative. I will, and you have a great day. Thank you so much for taking the time, and um, yeah, and, and maybe we'll see each other down the line somewhere. I hope so. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Robbie. Bye. Bye. MC Taylor, Robbie Robertson, thank you so much for joining us here on the Talk House podcast. Listeners, make sure to check out Once We're Brothers. That opens February 21st around the country. And check out his Golden Messenger's latest album, Terms of Surrender. Really beautiful stuff. MC recorded his side of the conversation in North Carolina. Robbie was recorded by Carl Wingate at the Village Studios in LA. Josh, you pulled an MC and are recording yourself in Chicago. And I am being recorded by our co-producer, Mark Yoshizumi, at Hook and Fade in Brooklyn. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to head to our archives for MC Taylor's conversation with My Morning Jacket's Jim James and subscribe to the show. We have some amazing episodes coming up, including Maria Bamford with Chris Gethard. That's next week. Kelly Reichard with Olivier Assayas and George Saunders with Dana Spiota. Check us out at TalkHouse.com and on all your favorite social media. Check out our events page. TalkHouse will be part of the incredible lineup at next month's On Air Fest here in New York. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. And I'm Josh Modell. Peace! And brothers. Today's episode of the TalkHouse podcast was brought to you by Current, the mobile bank account that comes with the Visa debit card with no minimum balance, no overdrafts, and no hidden fees. The Current app notifies you when you spend and automatically helps you put money away with roundups into savings pots. You can pause your card from the app at any time and get help through 24-7 live chat support. 10 of the first 100 people to sign up for Current using the promo code TALKHOUSE are going to win 10 bucks. Make that your tenor and make banking easy. Download Current now. <laughs>